We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking at the middle rounds of an early best ball draft. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my Twitter at Eric's Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. Just did a piece on targets per out run recently. We'll have another one out probably by the time this podcast is up. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his fantastic work at Rotoviz, obviously on the, on the Rotoviz podcast feed find the great road of his overtime podcast with calm kelly they just had jj zacharyson on this week sean we uh we're just talking before the show for about an hour about college basketball but we're going to talk a little bit football because this is uh, ostensibly a football show that's right we are excited about college basketball this is getting to be a fun time of the year for that sport it's one of our favorites and it factors into ben's omni fantasy uh, product and game that is an absolute blast i am not playing because i know i would get so obsessed with it that i would lose uh time on other things that i have responsibilities for that's how fun i believe that one to be also i've been giving a little bit of hard time if if i'm in on that it, it needs to have the tour de france but um it doesn't currently have cycling. It does have both of your car racing. So if you're a NASCAR or an F1 fan, you know, get in there, check out Omni Fantasy. You'll be very happy that you did. If you enjoy all sports and want to play them all together, get in there for that. Ben mentioned also that he has some new content out for Stealing Signals, the Target Per Route Run articles, always a lot of fun. And we're going to sort of tease or incorporate some of that information into our look today some best ball right we've got drafts going on we got the never too early contest in the ffpc where you can win twenty five thousand dollars if you take first place in this tournament that goes through the nfl draft and you'll only be drafting against teams that are in that same kind of boat in terms of how much information they have so i'm pretty excited for this then i know that you have done some drafts recently so we're going to be looking at a draft that blair andrews and i did but Ben obviously has those insights from his drafts, and also he can come in and criticize what we did, give us kind of a sense of what we should have done instead, or at least in theory, if we could get Ben to jump in and, and point Blair and myself in the right direction. But we got a lot of other picks. Blair and I are on the turn. We did have the 101. So as we look today at sort of rounds five through 10-ish, we'll see kind of what comes up for us. Ben, we're not exactly in position 
to take advantage of those, those values that sometimes slide into the middle of rounds. When you look at win rates over time, these middle of the round picks do well. Part of that is because the top picks at running back have really gotten injured over the last handful of seasons. So that's going to knock down the win rates from the early selections. But we know that there's an advantage of picking in the middle. Now, in most contests, you're not necessarily going to have the choice. You take the spot that you're given and, and you hope that you get a little bit of a variety so you can apply some different strategies or at least get some different players as you go through. Do you have a preference on where you're drafting uh, either overall or in these early drafts? Do you have a spot in the draft that you like to be? I do like that idea of being in the middle of the round um, and having a little bit more flexibility. ADP is not really settled yet. So we don't have like clear pockets of where players might go and those types of things. I mean, I, I, I do like being at the 101, the 102 and, and getting potentially Taylor or McCaffrey, but I also, I mean, I've teased a little bit some concerns with Taylor in the early offseason. I've done more work on that. I'm probably going to write about it on the Substack eventually, just sort of what I'm seeing. And so people can kind of uh, understand that and then make their own decisions. But I mean, one of the notes on Taylor is that he had, I was using the road of his screener, he had more, and we know this, this was talked about all season, but he had more green zone touches this year than not just anyone last year by a mile, which was true, but then any back since Arian Foster in 2012. You got to go to a different era of the NFL. Wait, you know, more than Derrick Henry has had, more than, you know, a, a lot of these dudes. And you can go all the way back to 2000, which the screener goes back to, and the high in a season for any player is LaDainian Tomlin since 2004 with 50 green zone touches. Taylor had 43, I think it was. He wasn't really far off from that. There's only 11 running back seasons that had more since 2000. And most of them are in that 2000 uh, to 2012 range, all of them that are, that are better than what Taylor had. And it's like two of LaDainian Tomlinson's seasons from his massive you know, career, two seasons from Edron James, two seasons from Foster, one from a couple other top names. Guys like Sean Alexander never had as many as Jonathan Taylor. And that guy scored you know 26 touchdowns or whatever and won an MVP. So you look at it from that perspective and you go, Taylor, obviously, there's a lot to love about him, but that's something that's probably not going to carry over. I mean, I don't think you can bank on 40-plus green zone touches again next year. I guess what I'm hearing you say, though, is that this could snap back to reality. There's plenty of risk. And yet, if we do get a decent quarterback in there, which it sounds like the Colts may try and make a play for one, and then we do, they do a little bit of what we talked about where they get him involved a little bit more in the passing game again, which that dried up in the last month, that we could actually be seeing a Ladanian Tomlinson player in the contemporary NFL. I mean, Jonathan Taylor in 2022 as Ladanian Tomlinson. I mean, that's one way to take it. Obviously, I'm not saying that, that um, there's not upside when you see those types of figures. I mean, that is... Basically, anyone who has a really great year is going to have stats like this that are going to show that are going to look basically, you know, unsustainable. And and then if you always fade that, you're going to miss the guys who were great over multiple seasons, obviously. Um, and Taylor might just be that back that that does this a lot. But I do think it will be challenging to to repeat that. And and Sean, I mean, we we talk about I don't you know I guess we can open with a little Taylor discussion, but we. We talk about the like 25 point per game plateau. I mean, it's also worth noting that he only had 22 points per game in PPR, despite that, despite the massive efficiency, the long touchdown runs, all of those things. Again, I'm not trying to 
to bash on Taylor, and I'm still going to take him. I'm still going to take him one on one to get exposure to him in early drafts, like you guys did here. But he had a fantastic season. And part of the reason we are going to view it favorably as well, and another reason I'm, again, slightly concerned, but not overly concerned, and, and another one that I want to hear your thoughts on, is that part of the reason he looked so good, he was the overall RB1 at 22 points per game, is there wasn't any other truly elite backs this year. I mean, Eckler was somewhat close, but since the, this was the lowest overall RB1 season since 2015, the, the Devonta Freeman season, since then, in the five years in between, there were 13 player seasons where a guy played, I think it was at least eight games and had more points per game than Taylor did in 2021, basically two and a half per year. So what he just did more frequently would have been the RB two or the RB three season than, you know, the, the, the RB one that it was this year. And some of that is just related to what happened with the other backs. And so that's another part of it for me where, can he repeat everything he did last year? Sure. Can he even build on it? Sure. You just made the case that he could be Ladanian Tomlinson. But I do think this idea that he's the clear consensus overall 101 is, I mean, it's given a little bit of credit to things that weren't really related to him. It's just like we're, we're coming off a season where he was clearly the best back, but some of that has to do with the other backs. Yeah, I mean, if you put him in against some of those seasons that we saw from Le'Veon Bell, from Todd Gurley, obviously against the top season there from Christian McCaffrey, you look at what David Johnson was able to do at his peak, and Taylor would be sliding in well below those guys. The flip side of it is that, I mean, he was the top player, and we know that people are going to chase that every season. And I think it makes sense because it's the person who is best positioned based on what they did last year. If you're only going to do one or two drafts, I think that you should take Cooper Cup or you know a Travis Kelsey, someone like that at the 101. The reason he's going at the 101 in part is just that you're going to be able to get the guys who actually should be the 101 later. And so you can get exposure to them when you don't have that very So you top. agree? Yeah, yeah. I, and the other one, we talked a little bit about Christian McCaffrey the other day, and the discussion kind of went in a different direction, but you were just making the case that you still liked him even with the injuries and even with know how quickly most of these guys fall off and then you just made the point now that if you're going to fade all of these situations where someone has had a peak season then you're going to miss when anybody has a sustained run of excellence we talked a lot last offseason and it formed a lot of not entirely but a lot of the basis for what we like to do in redraft this emphasis on talent and that was very successful in terms of meshing that with the structural drafting that we do put us in a great position in a lot of different drafts and a lot of different leagues and a lot of different formats and McCaffrey is another guy who, who fits there I mean both of these guys do things that separate them not just by a little bit but by a ton from the rest of the league at running back and you were making those points on McCaffrey and one of the things that I just like to point out is that you want to understand how age works at the different positions you want to understand that running backs can lose very little and still be the guy. I mean, David Johnson, Todd Gurley, Ezekiel Elliott, small losses in athleticism at the running back position takes a guy who's a star and makes him barely startable. And so as these players decline, you want to understand the way that that works. And yet at the same time, you want to continue to create exposure to all-time great types of players. And we think about the biggest fantasy seasons this century. And we're in a different dynamic we're in a different 
place and time. We're not going to necessarily see seasons like that very often. You look at Priest Holmes, you look at Marshall Falk, and you look at Damian Tomlinson, and when those seasons were posted, those guys were in their late 20s, right? And so the idea that someone like a Christian McCaffrey with what he brings to the table, that he couldn't have two or three more gigantic seasons, I mean, obviously he could, right? So we have to weigh both sides of that if we think that he's an all-time great. And that part of it, I think, is not always considered. Although at the same time, he is going at the 102. So obviously he's not being faded. It's more a matter of should he be the 101 and what are people willing to trade for him in, in Dynasty? Yeah, and I, I did this with David Johnson a few years ago and got bit. I mean, after 2016, was really in on him on 2017. In 2017, he gets hurt. And I was back in on him in 2018 pretty heavily. Had a lot of exposure in the first round. And part of it, I was thinking, look, they're not going to, they're not going to be dumb enough to, to not use him how they should. And they were, they were dumb enough. <laughs> you can get in trouble assuming, you know, rational coaching and all those things that we can talk about. But he also continued to struggle staying healthy. Yeah, he did continue to struggle staying healthy, but I, I believe it was Mike McCoy who came in. And that was the year where we were talking a lot about, they were just shattering league rates on first and 10 runs up the middle. It wasn't even just first and 10 running. It was straight up the middle every time and they were not splitting him out wide, which was such a huge element to his 2016. He had this incredible air yards profile for a running back in 2016 when he was just a monster. And by 2018, when he actually stayed a little bit healthy, they weren't using him in the ways that was so effective. And it's just like... Well, you do want to prove which team is more physical. And yes, more absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though. That offseason, I was saying, there's no way they won't watch film and figure out that they need to split him out and all that stuff. And then, and then it it didn't happen. And so you can you can worry about stuff like that with McCaffrey and the Panthers. The difference, I think, is that with Johnson, we had the one big year. And, and also 2015 as a rookie, he was pretty strong. With McCaffrey now, we've seen several seasons of truly elite running back receiving production. And this last one, 2021, even though we only played seven games, you look at like the targets per out run stuff and all that that I've been writing about. I mean, this is the first little tidbit. Like he was phenomenal. Career highs, unsustainable, small sample, whatever you want to say. But was awesome in terms of earning targets, in terms of his production as a receiver in this small sample. The other thing I would note about him, you can look at his points per game this past year. I don't, I don't even want to go back to the 2019 season, which were was just so insane, right? Or even the 2020 year where he only played three games, but he averaged over 30 points per game in those three games. It's like, okay, well, he would have been the same guy if he would have stayed healthy. The 2021, he averages 18.4 points per game in PPR. But two of those games, he played fewer than 40% of the snaps and left early. The week three game that he left early, and then he finally comes back in week nine, and then he leaves week 12 early and is done for the year. Those two games barely plays, scores six points or fewer in both. I'm not saying we just throw all that out, whatever, but you look at the other five games, he goes over 20 points four times. He actually goes over 24 PPR points four times in those five games, and his average was well over 20 points. It was basically in the Jonathan Taylor range. And this is his little five game sample where he actually played a, a decent amount. But in that sample, he had a game where he only played 49% when they were sort of working him back in. In week 10, he only played 59% of the snaps in week 11. Uh, his average snap share in that five game sample where he was more of a full-time player, didn't leave a game early, was actually only 71%, which one of the huge things about 2019, McCaffrey was this 100% snap player. And so people say, for 2022, we're worried that I don't think McCaffrey can be a 100% snap player anymore. 2021, he was a 
if you look at these full games and you, and I'm doing a lot of, you know, waving, waving my hands right now, but you look at these five games, he was a 70% average snap rate player and still had these four games over 24 PPR points. Like I said, and those four games over 24 PPR points, he had two touchdowns in those, in those five games total that he played a, a decent amount of snaps. And uh, that, so that comes out to 0.4 TDs per game would be his lowest rate, even lower than his rookie season. So again, there's that element as well, where people are saying in 2022, the Panthers could be so bad. He doesn't score touchdowns. He just showed us he can be a 20 to 22 point per game player without touchdowns, without a hundred percent snap rate. That like feels like his floor. <laughs> John, that feels like his floor. And that's yeah. what Taylor just put up. Yeah. I mean, you just got to keep those soft tissues healthy. We'll see what happens there. I mean, the other part of it, just such a incredibly dynamic and exciting player, obviously in order to accomplish this, the chiefs would have to make a lot of different moves with the salary cap and whatnot. But you know, there, there have been these rumors that the Panthers need so much and that it has handicapped them so much with McCaffrey getting hurt the last couple of seasons and you know, obviously they've paid him and all those kinds of things that if they could get a good deal for him and help rebuild their depth, that maybe they would consider moving McCaffrey. When you kind of go and read the, the blogs that are dedicated to the Panthers, it does seem like something that you know people think is an option. And anytime there's something like that that's an option, I'm thinking, well, let's do Clyde Edwards Alaire and a first round pick and you know, whatever else, because if you add CMC to Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, then the Chiefs are not going to blow that 21 to 3 lead to the Bengals. But that's not going to happen. Ben, we covered the first four rounds. And just to give people a little bit of a recap, if they haven't listened or obviously don't have the last show memorized, we had guys like J.K. Dobbins and Josh Jacobs go at the end of the fourth round. We have Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes already drafted. The tight ends are all dried up. And so we start here. Blair and I at the turn took Terry McLaurin and Devontae Smith, both of those players who you know look better from their air yards profile than what they actually scored. Now, Smith, we would expect the emergence in year two. We hope for a little bit of a bounce back in the way that the Eagles decide to throw the ball. I think that even if they add other players in the receiving game, he is still going to be the clear-cut star. So if Jalen Hurts can take a little bit of a step forward there, then the sky is the limit. Of course, the limit is however much the Eagles decide to pass. But we want to take a little bit of shot at upside. But I think the fact that Devontae Smith would be a legitimate option at the 501 tells you that wide receiver is already drying up. How do you feel about the receivers in this round? Other guys who go a little bit later, Tyler Lockett, Michael Thomas, Elijah Moore, Traylon Burks, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Amari Cooper. We kind of got a mix of maybe declining veterans with question marks and then young players with high ceilings, but a ton of uncertainty. Yeah, it, it's a tough round. I've done a couple of drafts myself. It is a tough area. I've taken Devonta Smith here uh, and, and not loved it, but it, it's a fine pick. But this does feel like a range in early drafts. It's tough. Obviously, things are going to settle and change. And you know, some of the some of the veteran names in this range could potentially move up or, or also move down. Certainly the rookies are going to move up once we get draft capital. You look all the way ahead to August and things like that. Like there's going to be maybe not all the way up into this range. You, you mentioned Traylon Burks is in this in this round already. Maybe there won't be a ton of rookies in this range. This is basically where Chase was going, and Chase was like 
a truly generational prospect with massive draft capital, but they're going to start to move up from where some of the, the other receive, you know, rookie receivers are going. You guys will we'll get to this, but took a couple at the 10, 11 turn that I think will go higher in August. I, I'm curious to see where this range settles because it is tricky and it feels pretty flat relative to some of the receivers you can get all the way back in like round nine, round 10, round 11 in, in some of these drafts in the early going. And I don't really know necessarily how I want to play that or what that means. You guys, just to move a little bit ahead, uh, at the 6-7 turn, took Ayuk and Kyler. And then at the 8-9 turn, you already had Kittle at the in the uh, at the 301, but you went Fant and Fryermuth and got three really good tight ends, tight end premium scoring here with multiple flexes. So you have the, the potential to be starting all three of those tight ends some weeks. But... And I think that's really interesting in, in this range because the receivers don't really scream at you. And so you guys are building out in other ways in this draft. But yeah, this is a range where for me so far early in the off season, I haven't really liked the prices on a lot of these guys. And, and as I'm writing this like targets per out run stuff, you know, I just wrote about Michael Pittman today. I wrote about Amon Ross St. Brown the other day. Those are two guys that are going here. Uh, St. Brown late fifth Pittman goes six Oh one. I'm not sure I love those prices on those guys. Two good years, very good years, but they're not what I would think of as a fifth or sixth round receiver necessarily. Maybe St. Brown. Uh, I, I'm less optimistic about Pittman in that range. It's it's tough. It's a tough range. It is. And you sort of mentioned the tight end, so I'll, I'll touch on them briefly. One of the things that we always want to do in these drafts is make sure that we are loaded at tight end. And you saw it again in the FFPC tournament finals, the 12 teams that advanced to the final week, 11 of them had Mark Andrews. And part of that is a function of Andrews obviously scoring a lot of points during the fantasy playoffs. But we saw that with Travis Kelsey and George Kittle and Darren Waller in previous years. And we know that the scoring that these top tight ends do really differentiates the teams. And so uh, the 12th team that didn't have Andrews had Kittle. We had a team in there with Travis Kelsey in addition to Mark Andrews. A lot of the other teams had a second tight end that had been contributing for them during the course of that playoff run. And we wanted to make sure for partly the reasons that you mentioned, which is that if the draft is flat, make sure you take a position that isn't flat. And at the same time, make sure you're getting the structure that works. And we know that the elite tight end works. We, we took Kittle early, like you mentioned. And then we want to wait through the tight end dead zone and then come back out the other side of it and get a couple of guys before it sort of dries up again. And we were hoping that it would create even a little bit more of a run at the tight end position. But one of the things in this particular format is 20 rounds instead of 18 rounds, in part because you're drafting so early. They're giving you a couple more roster spots for this early contest. But with that, we felt that we could also address running back really late with guys that we liked. And we would use those last picks at running back. And that allowed us within that context to use all of the picks, all 20 picks effectively. Now, there are going to be other participants in this draft who look at it and be like, you know, we don't like the running backs you got late. So we think that you actually made some throwaway picks. But one of the things that I think is so important in best ball, where you cannot make any adjustments, throughout the rest of the season is to not have any picks that are more or less just complete non-factors. And because we were able to get these three tight ends in this range, 
we didn't have to make any of those types of picks where I feel, and again, the people who picked them probably feel differently, but that there were a lot of throwaway tight end picks in the 17th through 20th rounds. And so those teams are actually functioning with just essentially one fewer roster spot than what we have. And so you want to structure your draft in a way that that doesn't happen to you. The other side of it is just that we really liked Fant and Fryermuth. Fant, not somebody who has scored a ton of points or finished his breakout, but even within the context of this horrible Denver passing offense and with so many other options, he's scored at that level that still will more or less pay off what he's been drafted at. And then you look at what the possible upsides are. Now, I mean, you shouldn't be like overdrafting or loading up on Denver Broncos with this slight possibility that Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback there next season. But you have to consider it as at least a little bit of an element. And one of the things too is that also you have to take most of the trade proposals that are being bandied about right now for Rodgers to be kind of silly. But one of the things that the Broncos could do would be to move Albert O as part of that package. And then you sort of firm up that tight end market share for Fant. So I think Fant has a huge upside. Even if they don't get Rodgers, they're going to get better quarterback play, or it'd be hard for them to get worse. And then Fryermuth, I think, is in that situation that Fant and Hawkinson were in a year ago, where those are the next potential guys to jump. Fryermuth looks like that guy. And again, there's that uncertainty with the quarterback position, but I mean, he would be my pick for the next player to move into that sort of Kittle Hawkinson range. I love that idea of Alberto moving because that is one of the, you know, concerns for Fant is when Alberto was healthy, his routes were not nearly as high. They, they spiked when Alberto was out. Uh, and Alberto's good. Like he's good at football. Like he's been doing some really strong things in basically any metric you can look at. But I'm with you. I mean, Fant also has been very solid, very, I mean, I would say above average uh, for a tight end in targets per run, some of these numbers. And if you look at it from a perspective of the passing offense as a whole could be better and less from a perspective of, okay, well, they have a lot of options. But you look at it, you know, again, what if they have a quarterback there that can maximize all those options that they have? That, yeah, Fant's upside could certainly just grow. From that perspective, it could help the efficiency, obviously, and you might just wind up with more overall passes. And and again, if Albert O's out out of there, then he's at eighty five percent routes, you know, per drop back. Again, fans' profile would look phenomenal. I mean, he would be a fourth round pick in that scenario. You guys get him here at the very end of the eighth as tight end ten, and I agree with you that even if all that pie in the sky stuff doesn't happen, he's probably going to beat value there. Hey, Rotoviz fans. This is Dave Cabin from the Rotoviz Fantasy Football Podcast, taking a minute to let you know that as a loyal Rotoviz listener, you can get 10% off a one-year subscription when you use the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. It gives you full access to all of our content and tools. And again, that's RVRADIO2022 at checkout for 10% off a one-year Rotoviz subscription. Enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, 
Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we were happy, and we and we do. One of the things we mentioned at the beginning is this idea of okay, well, the turn is a little bit tricky. I do like to use it to double up at a position where it could potentially create a run. Maybe if you're into that range where now you're in the QB window and you want to grab a couple of QBs, you can kind of change the dynamic a little bit at the turn, which I think is valuable to balance out the fact that you're less likely to be able to take advantage of values. And you might even feel like you're forced to reach if you have someone who goes in the middle of the next round, but you have them higher on your board. So you're not going to get an ADP value, but you'll get a value on your own rankings. So you have to reach because I mean, obviously they're not going to come 24 players back around. I like that element of it. Now we didn't do that at QB, but we did have a chance to do that at wide receiver where in the 10-11, I think we were pretty fortunate to get Wilson and London who are probably going to be the second and third rookie wide receivers, probably receivers who were drafted in the first 25 picks, although there's still a, a huge amount to go before we get to that point. You know, so much of the, the draft offseason still transpiring. Ben, I was looking at this and almost thinking that maybe round six was as good, if not better, than round five. Now, that's in a range where that shouldn't be that surprising. But round six wide receivers, Gabriel Davis, after his massive blow up against the Chiefs, Mike Williams kind of consolidating his early season breakout with what he did again at the very end of the season. Jerry Judy, still people hoping the third year will be the charm after the injuries last year. Then Hunter Renfro, who we mentioned on the previous show, we were fortunate enough to sort of trade for him right before the McDaniel situation, you know, could be, uh, you know, hopefully like a, a poor man's version maybe of Wes Welker or Julian Edelman. And then Darnell Mooney, who, you know, is the guy right now in Chicago. Any of those guys jump out to you? I mean, Mooney somebody who, if the Bears were going to stay absolutely put with what they have, you know, you'd have to like his air yards profile. You'd have to like what his target share projected to. And yet, you know, not having the draft slot to kind of back him up, not having this, you know, really high expectation from the franchise itself, I think, with the GM, you know, having sort of anointed him their guy early on. We know that they're going to at least attempt to add talent anything with those guys in there either jump out as this is a great value or this is a little bit of a risk i agree with you that this is a, a more intriguing round I'm, I'm pretty sold on davis i think people are going to think of him uh in terms of just that playoff game and like he's being overly hyped because of that playoff game and the reality is that's not at all fair to 
profile, what he did on limited routes in 2020, and then what he also did on limited routes in 2021. He's been very efficient both years. He's been able to earn volume at a good per route clip both years. And then he did what he did in the playoffs. And so um, talk about 30-year receiver that's going to potentially get the opportunity. We know late-round picks, sometimes it takes a couple extra years from your great work on sort of wide receiver breakout um, years that, that when a guy's taken in the later rounds, it takes maybe a second year of production like Gabe Davis just had for the team to then trust him and make him a full-time player. But everything from a per route and you know per target, all that stuff, perspective uh, has been strong in his profile. So, And he was quietly a very good prospect coming in. Right. A very good producer in college as well. So you have this really positive element. What we think of him as a player from this long view perspective that we always talk about, we now have a really nice sample on him that the guy's good. And then the team situation, they throw a ton, you know, even if he's in a part-time role, he's probably going to give you decent enough value in the sixth round. He's going to give you production. You talked about in, in uh, best ball, not wanting to have waste picks. He's, he's not going to be a wasted pick, but there's also this potential for him to be, in a full-time role and be very, very good as the number two for the Bills. Renfro is very enticing. I'm excited to get to them. I have not written up the Raiders yet, but to look at some of his targets per hour numbers and some of his information. Uh, and Mooney's another one that I have written up. His numbers are strong. He's sort of like Pittman for me in that they. I think these guys are going in a range where I can't really see them going higher or certainly when I'm thinking about guys who might move throughout the offseason – I want to ask myself, would I be comfortable taking them higher? I would not be comfortable taking either of them higher. Both of them in part were the beneficiaries of sort of a lack of strong target competition or, you know, any good teammates. And then both of them also were the beneficiaries of just playing 17 games and running a ton of routes and being healthy and, and out there a ton, where if you look at their production in a points per game lens, it wasn't really that elite. I think they're both very good. They both bring some air yards. And they're both guys that are going to very much be fantasy relevant. And, and I, I don't think they're like horrible picks to just get another productive receiver in these ranges. But I wouldn't say that Mooney like glares in neon lights to me as an early draft season target, particularly because also like Pittman, another reason I'm throwing them in together with the lack of target competition last year, they're teams that are very much in the market to upgrade uh, at wide receiver or at tight end. And suddenly, you know, these guys might not have the same ability to, to earn targets at the same rate. Um, and for both of them, their targets per out run were very good in year two, strong year two jumps, but also not what you would think of as traditional, like number one receiver range where if I'm taking a guy in the sixth round, I want to believe that he can produce like a second or third round receiver I, these guys, even in the situations where they didn't have a lot of target competition, the guys they were competing to earn targets with are not guys that are going to earn targets well. Uh, they still weren't able to really be like strong where it would look like second or third round type receiver production. I don't know. I'm saying that kind of weird. They were strong, both of them, but they weren't elite, certainly. Uh, and maybe that's a, an unfair expectation. They're still growing. But uh, Mooney is one that I think is a fine pick, but not one that I'm really jumping at. And you kind of mentioned the different scenarios there that could take place. And one of the things that we want to do when we're building our boards right now, 
for basically all of the players, but certainly players like those two guys that you just mentioned, is you have to play out, okay, what do I, would I expect the ADP to be if the team sort of blows it and isn't able to add and maybe does improve the quarterback play a little bit. Now with Justin Fields, you expect that just him taking the next step. The Colts, you could say, but maybe Carson Wentz takes the next step or they get somebody better in there. And so if the QB improves and yet they don't add a lot of other targets, then each of these guys we could see move up another, say, six to 10 picks. At the same time, if they do add a true number one on each team, you're looking at these guys potentially falling multiple rounds. And so you have more risk than you have upside at these prices. And maybe within the context of this particular tournament, you won't even see their ADPs move that much. But still, even if you're drafting now and you're drafting against a group of people who are going to play with these ADPs during this time frame, you still want the players who are going to be more valuable when you think about how will people, people be drafting in August, in early September. I don't think that these are going to be the guys in that range at that time period. And let me ask you, though, as well, as we're talking about them, just to sort of wrap it up, because I kind of already said, if they did have those really nice offseason scenarios where they don't add a lot of competition, there's these two guys look like the number ones in their respective offenses next year, and they potentially even get quarterback upgrades, or it looks like they'll be getting a quarterback upgrade. And they're going six to ten picks high. They're going in the fifth round or uh, maybe into the back of the fourth would you be targeting them going into year three based on that? Do you, I mean, I don't That's think that's another I, good point because if they rise, then they're not going to be personal targets for you. And so you have that dynamic as well. And I, I guess I'm looking at it. I don't really see a possibility of them moving into the fourth. Perhaps if things are really bad for the commanders, which it's fun to get that out there. We're trying to say commanders as often as possible. Now uh, maybe Terry McLaurin could drop, but they're going to still be below the rest of those fourth round wide receivers there are going to be guys in that fifth round group that solidify themselves that they're going to be below and there are going to be other players here as well below them now i mean maybe not because you look at round seven round eight round nine it's really weak at wide receiver and again a reason why you would want to have that addressed early on but i just i don't think that they can climb that much and then once they do you don't want them and and again, that's not to be down on either of those guys individually. Darnell Mooney, somebody I have on almost all of my dynasty teams and never trade because no one wants to pay for him. And yet also that gives you a little bit of an insight about just some of this knowledge that is embedded in the dynasty community and what people are willing to do on the trade market. It's like, you know, there are some issues there that keep the ceiling from being what you would need to make that a home run pick. And, you know, you're not going to win your league with every pick, but you need to have the opportunity for every pick that you make to make a real impact on your run to the title. Absolutely. And and I, I do like Mooney, I think, a little bit more than Pittman as we try to talk about some differences. Um, I don't know if that's what you were saying. You kind of settled on him. He's the one where, uh, I mean, their offense was just so dysfunctional this year that I could see some of the, the team level stuff really – benefiting him but yeah i mean i agree with everything else you just said there are a couple guys you said seven eight nine is weak and you're asking me some guys that i think maybe are interesting there's a couple guys in that range that i want to highlight the first is not an unfamiliar name to uh anyone who's listened to this show or especially your show with calm 
and it's Tyler Boyd who goes in the middle of the ninth. I, I mean, he's owed a decent amount of money, but the Bengals have a lot of cap space, and I think they like him. He's been a productive player for them for a lot of years. I don't think there'd be a reason for them to cut him when they have so many other guys on rookie deals uh, in their passing game. I just, I mean, I, 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 he didn't have a great year. Jamar Chase and T. Higgins are phenomenal and are going to be great. At the same point, part of our optimism for both of Chase and Higgins is feeling like this Bengals offense still has meat left on the bone in terms of how much they could throw in a full season. They, they came out a little bit concerned about Burrow's health and a little bit run heavy, and they show some run heavy tendencies at other times as well. But we do think that probably the long-term view of this offense is that they're going to recognize that Jamar Chase and T Higgins and this passing game is what matters. Boyd was still very solid. He came down a little bit in targets part run, but still very solid. Well above like CJ Uzama, for example, who was just sort of, you know, another guy running routes based on how he looks on a per route basis in terms of earning volume and stuff. Boyd was actually actively earning some volume was efficient, not, not terribly inefficient or anything had some long touchdowns, gets that a little bit of advantage, even with less targets, not having the defensive attention like he did a couple of years ago before Higgins was drafted. I mean, Boyd was their number one. Uh, you have the better quarterback play than what he had back then, and he was productive. I mean, we, we know he's a good player. Then you also have some contingent value as well in this scenario where either Chase or Higgins were to miss some time. I think Boyd is the clear guy who steps into some more volume because he is the clear next best player in this passing game in terms of you know who has opportunity to to have uh to fill this you know target per route run void if you will i just i love him as an easy value in the ninth round as a guy who's going to be attached to a good passing game people are going to be down on him because there's better receivers on his team but his specific profile doesn't have any glaring red flags he's not that old there's not there's no real issues with him yeah and, and you could see him emerge as one of these just superstar possession receivers in an elite passing offense it's harder to do it in a more pedestrian passing offense which is what the Bengals really fielded for most of the season but then you look at when the passing offense started to emerge and the Bengals started to become what they've been during this sort of playoff run with a truly elite team in weeks 13 to week 17 he averaged over 15 points per game you know we, we tend to joke so much or, or focus on the fact that uh when Connor beat us in the best ball final there that Jamar Chase was the real difference because obviously he had Chase and we didn't, but it was actually Tyler Boyd's touchdown that gave him, you know, if you want to look at other particular players who's, who made actually the starting lineup there, it was Tyler Boyd's touchdown that put him over the top and, and got him those points. I mean, Tyler Boyd can score. And in the ninth round, he is a good value. He's somebody else that you, know, you won't hear me say a bad word about him. We, we have him on basically every dynasty team and it is funny the the values or the trade offers that come in and, and people um you know will make this offer of like naheem hines and and you're like you know that that player in this format is is maybe borderline rosterable even whereas you know tyler boyd a straightforward flex and and then the question is you know well what do you want for him you're like we want a legitimate player and then obviously the phone line goes dead but boyd someone we like there so i like that one how about one that i think you won't like <laughs> and, and Boyd, by the way, uh, just turned 27 in November. I mean, this guy's right in the middle of his prime. But here's one that I, I think you won't like that I'm intrigued by. Uh, at the 801, Allen Robinson went. Allen Robinson is not a fun pick right now. He was terrible last year. 
but when I talk about, again, targets per outrun and these types of things, and I, I looked at the Bears and I dug into his numbers, Robinson, since his rookie season in 2014, has been at least, has been targeted on at least 21% of routes every year. That's good. That's That's solid, at least. His previous two years with the Bears, he was up over 24%. That's where we get into really strong range. To give an example of like where like Pittman and Mooney were, where I was saying it was solid, they're right in this like 22% range. Very solid. And that's that's about where Robinson has been every year of his career up until 2021. Uh, and he had gotten, again, up over 24%. That's where you start to get good, good, you know, plus target earning potential. In 2021, he fell all the way to 18%. And to me, to my eye, we talked about this during the year. It just felt like an effort thing. He was on the franchise tag. Uh, the team sucked. You also had the element where his efficiency was horrible. It's like after the target efficiency, you say yards per target was right alongside his career worst season in 2016. He was at 6.2 yards per target. He was 6.1 that year. He's typically in the eight range. And so you have, and he's had some seasons that are even more impressive than that. I mean, go way back to 2015, his best year, he was 9.9 yards per target. But you have this guy that for most of his career was, I mean, really consistent at earning target volume. He's another one that's not that old. I think he just turned 28 or maybe he's, maybe he turns 29 in August. I, I have looked at so many players over the last couple of days, but he's not 30 yet. He won't play this year at 30. I know that he's still in his late twenties. Uh, probably going to be on a different team. There's going to be this sort of Kenny Galladay type feel, I think, to him where Galladay changes teams and things don't go well. I don't think there's ever going to really be a lot of excitement for Robinson. We know changing teams is tough. At the same time, I think you can sort of tell yourself a story pretty easily that he just wasn't happy with the Bears. He wasn't happy on the franchise tag. There was the report around Thanksgiving that the the, the team didn't like Matt Nagy. Some of the players in the um, locker room didn't like Matt Nagy. And I don't have the guy's name on the top of my mind that made that report. He wasn't like a, a, a huge breaking news guy. But I remember clicking through to his profile and he says right in his bio that he hosts a podcast with Alan Robinson. And I remember at the time going, well, this is interesting. I wonder where he got this report that players in the Bears locker room are not happy with Matt Nagy. And so... I, yeah, I just have this this. I, I don't like Tyler or uh, taking Allen Robinson at all. I don't. I don't like the feeling of it. And yet, this dude was going in the third round last year. Didn't like him there. Now you can get him in the eighth round. And there was this potential that he just really didn't want to play football for the Bears last year on the franchise tag and was just not playing. And everything else in his career suggests that he's a lot better than what he did this past year. Maybe he's done, but maybe it was really was just an effort thing. And, and again, I watched a lot of Justin Fields. I, lost, I watched a lot, a lot of tape on those guys. And there was a lot of these routes where like Robinson literally wasn't running the route. Like he just literally was not even trying to get open. And Fields is staring at him. And some of the sacks that they were saying, I remember highlighting and stealing signals. It's because the receiver that he was looking at wasn't even moving. Like, I mean, Robinson played like that all year. Do you think there's this possibility that he goes to a new team, suddenly is reinvigorated and is trying again? And does really well, kind of like he started to do in his time with the Bears as soon as he got out of Jacksonville and and started uh, you know, having a couple good seasons with Chicago. Well, let me ask you, is there a, a situation here where we could just wait a little bit longer in the draft and then take Sammy Watkins? He's not Sammy Watkins, Sean. Come on. 
All right, so I was right. You are not on Alan Robinson. <laughs> it uh, it seems like he is. I mean, Watkins and and Robinson coming in in that elite class with Mike Evans and Devonte Adams, but not maintaining at quite the the same rate. Okay, but I, Robinson was good in 2019 and 2020. Sammy Watkins hasn't been good for like, I mean, his last. Let me look at his numbers. His last 700-yard season is his second year in 2015. I mean, Sammy Watkins has not had 700 yards in like seven years. Allen Robinson just had 250 target seasons before last year. Both of the two years prior was a third-round pick last year. I mean, there's a little bit of a difference there. Was he open on any of those targets in 2019 and 2020? <laughs> he, he caught enough of them to have two 1,100-yard seasons. I, I think the difference between... Robinson and Galladay is that Galladay moves at a time period where he still offered a vertical threat to offenses, still offered elite athleticism, and then uh, unfortunately for him wasn't able to stay healthy. And then is just a you know tiny fraction of himself there in the first season with the New York Giants. I mean, he's a guy I think is a little bit more interesting when we look at where he's going there. And I you know I tried to get Blair on the same page with me on taking Galladay because he also I don't see him here where did he wind up going we're looking at the first 12 I'm looking at the first 12 rounds of your draft it looks like he didn't go even in the first 12 rounds yes so Kenny Galladay goes at the 1403 wow yeah I mean if I'm saying Allen Robinson might just be a pure value type pick at 801 it's really hard to knock 1403 for Kenny Galladay and, and I think I would prefer I mean I would prefer Galladay yeah just straight up so that doesn't mean he's going to bounce back necessarily, but the Giants are going to be in a lot better place. The offense is going to be a lot more functional. There's going to be a little bit less pressure on him because obviously they do have some other wide receivers. His contract, not as cuttable as some of the other contracts. If they do try and you know clean up that wide receiver room a little bit. And so I think he'll be there. I think that Daniel Jones will take a little bit, of a step forward. He's not going to become Josh Allen because nobody becomes Josh Allen. Josh Allen is the NFL's ultimate weapon, but I think that we'll get a more viable fantasy profile from him. And so that part of it is exciting. If you're looking at a Kenny Galladay or a Kadarius Tony, he's somebody who goes at the eight 10, then anybody who jumps out and has like two games where you come in, like every target that the team has as a rookie, I think you've got to, feel like, well, in year two, they could be a real force. And yet after that little stretch, I mean, Tony didn't look like someone who belonged in the NFL. Part of that against the Giants, part of it is failing to stay healthy. Where are you with him knowing that we want to create exposure to as many of these second year guys as possible, but that, I mean, price obviously matters. I think he's an easy pick at 810 for the reasons you said. I mean, it's, there's a wide range but there's a wide range with anybody, especially in these early drafts. Um, there's a wider range with Tony than, than others, but we definitely get too sure about what we're getting in drafts, even up through August. We're too sure of, you know, projections and all that stuff. We talk about this stuff constantly on the show. And so then we artificially push guys down where it's like, well, there's a lot of risk here. Uh, yeah, there's risk with every pick. I mean, there's risk with so many more picks than, than, it feels like when you're drafting. I mean, I think one of the keys to, to doing well in fantasy drafts, fantasy football drafts especially, is 
this willingness to be uncomfortable with some of your picks, this willingness to be like, yeah, this doesn't really feel like the way that I took picks growing up and was taught to take picks because there's so much chaos and, and you have to think about what's going to happen in terms of, you know, we talk about small miss, big hit type picks. People love to take the small hit, big miss type picks because they feel like, you know, they're buying, they're really buying a guy near his ceiling, but they feel like they're getting something secure. Tony is none of those things, but I was just talking about targets per out run and, and where the numbers are, you know, good getting up around 25% is good. He was at 27% as a rookie. Some of that was some design touches and things, but a lot of it was just like you said, in a couple of those games, he's just earning volume like heavily. Um, I think there's some off the field issues you can have as well. Some of the, you know, interviews and things were a little bit weird this year. I would say I'm not trying to be too critical, but there's some concern that he might be a bit of a handful as a player. And I, again, I don't, I don't mean to say that in a, in a way that sounds at all, you know, too, too judgmental. I just think that the, um, you know, on its face, there there are some concerns, but his targets per out run were phenomenal. His efficiency was good. His yards after the catch ability was clear. It is a small sample, only about 200 routes. But I mean, he posted a, a yards per out run over two. You love seeing that in a rookie, which is, you know, just a combination of targets per out run and, and yards per target. And he was very good at both of those. I, I think you have to take the swing because he could be a guy that's worth a second round picnic in the year following. I mean, if, if he gets everything in line and this offense is better, he looks like he can be very, very good. He does. I think that's one of the best bargains here in the draft, especially when you consider, you know, some of the players going ahead of him, uh, you know, we won't break them down on today's show, but the two picks immediately before Tony were Odell Beckham and Christian Kirk, who you would expect to end up, with new teams, although I'm sure the Rams would love to have Beckham. And yet, I mean, you're going to have to have some very specific scenarios play out to where you have the right mix of risk and reward with those selections. But let's move to the running backs a little bit here because much more so than really in any year in recent memory, I think that the round five to eight to 10 range at running back is actually a lot of fun. Now, you mentioned that we had JJ on overtime. He was fantastic. I encourage anybody who has any interest to check that out because JJ is always really fun to listen to. But he was mentioning, you know, don't overreact to things that happened in the previous season. We know that if you can avoid that, which obviously is the human temptation, it's it's almost impossible to do. But if you can maintain your structural drafting in the face of whatever you know the big trend was in the previous season, you're probably going to come out on top. He was mentioning the running back dead zone. You and I have felt like there are going to be some running backs with profiles that we actually like that go in the dead zone this year. And that may be more the case early on. I think that you know these running backs are going to rise, especially when you look at some of the receivers that are going. I think the running backs are going to rise above them. But you look at round five, Ezekiel Elliott falls to the 503. I mean, he was bad enough this season that people are going to continue to compress that gap between him and Tony Pollard. Elijah Mitchell at the 506. Uh, that pick happens a few days before the 49ers come out and say, look, Debo is more or less going to be our star running back too. And so I think that that makes that pick well exciting because you're getting a 49ers young running back. We talk about the 49ers having a new back every year. 
But when you have a young guy with athleticism and some pop, I mean, you'd have to consider the possibility that he actually goes off for a very big season. Then we get Bruce Reese Hall at number six with a 506. He's someone that pops in both Dave Cabins and Blair Andrews running back advanced metrics in the rookie guide. Not guaranteed to be the first running back off the board. Right now, mock drafts are, are pretty evenly split between him and Isaiah Spiller, who goes at the 704. And even Kenneth Walker will get in there in some mocks. So we'll see how that plays out. But I do like Hall there. And then, you know, the 2020 playoff MVP and 2021 zero RB uh, to the gods, really. Leonard Fournette wrapping up there at 5'11". Obviously, there's still some skepticism about where Fournette will go. So much of his value came from Tom Brady, but he did rehabilitate his career. There's no question. Yeah, absolutely. And and I completely agree with your comments on the top about this running back range. Um, it's interesting. Elliott was a 20th back off the board. I think we talked about this on the last show, but just not a lot of backs off the board in the first four rounds. You don't typically see that. And I, I agree with you that later in the summer, we're not going to see that. We're going to see 20 backs off the board by the end of the fourth round. We'll probably see 25 and, and, and that will change the way that, you know, the running backs look. But right now the dead zone is still some backs that, you know, in prior years might've been going in the third round. And so in terms of where they rank in the running back list, 20, 21, 22, Breeze Hall, these rookies, one of these guys is going to go higher than this. You mentioned Hall going in the fifth, Spiller in the seventh, Walker in the eighth. We always see at least one rookie running back in the first four rounds. It's not going to be like that later. That's a big reason to like these early drafts is to get some exposure to some of these guys that are just clearly going to go higher uh, later in the year, even though this is not a running back class that is very well liked. And and they might, you know, none of them may go in the first round or even, I, I don't I don't know, you would know better than me, but in the second round. I, I I don't really know what we're expecting there, but uh, I still expect that at least one of these guys will wind up for fantasy purposes in that top 20 backs. But yeah, you mentioned Mitchell. Elliot is one that I don't even want to think about having to, t- to like think about taking, but I mean, the guy was hurt all year and now you get him in the fifth round. It's kind of a weird, uh, a weird situation. I don't want to be taking him at all, but I want someone else to be taking him higher than this so, so I don't have to have this discussion in any kind of way. And then you look into the sixth round, Michael Carter, Devin Singletary, Travis Etienne, Kareem Hunt. I think Hunt is still another good pick in the sixth round like he's been the last couple of years. I think you've noted in some of your pieces both the last couple of years that he makes a lot of sense in the dead zone and he, and he will continue to for similar reasons if he's going to go in the sixth round. Etienne is one of my favorite early values. Obviously, James Robinson is going to be further behind in his rehab than ETN is. Robinson tore his Achilles late in the season. It's, there's a solid chance that ETN is sort of the guy going into next year in his second season. We we didn't get a chance to see him at all, but a very good prospect. And assuming he's at all healthy, yeah, I don't expect he'll be going at the end of the sixth round, basically, in uh, August either. And so there's a lot of these guys. Singletary, I, I'm more curious about your thoughts on him. You've seemed to always have your finger on the pulse with him. And, and Carter's another one where you just you wonder about the Jets' offense. But if that team can make some strides forward, seems like a really nice pick in the sixth round as a young guy. We in the dead zone typically we're looking at young guys that can continue to grow and build. Uh, you know, sort of be their first big season. And so ETN fits that. Carter fits that. These rookies fit that. 
there's yeah, there's plenty of running backs that I'd be willing to take in this range. Yeah, you mentioned Devin Singletary in round six, and granted through week 13 last year. And so people who drafted him, you know, were in trouble if they needed him at all to make their playoffs because he didn't score. But then you look at week 14, scores 15 points. Week 15, 16 and a half. Week 16, almost 19. Week 17, 23. Week 18, 25. And so you continue to see him stair step higher the whole way. And he made such a big impact in the fantasy playoffs. And it, is surrounded by such a good team that if you're you know letting him fall to the sixth round that means there are a lot of drafters who are betting on him falling back into a committee and that's that's a real possibility i think with what the, the way that they've used him to this point would suggest that they don't completely trust him he had to be so good at the end to kind of take that over and simultaneously the other backs had to be bad right they basically went completely away from zach moss they tried to throw matt Breida in there Breida failed in, in a probably fairly predictable fashion, but the fact that they wanted to make sure that they explored that gives you a little bit of a sense. But one of the things here, and you can talk about how it's against softer fronts because teams are trying to take away the Bills passing game, but Devin Singletary pops in the different evasion rate stats and does it every season. And so the idea that you know he is a very mediocre talent, I think is a more questionable proposition than the way it's portrayed in the media a lot and you know among fantasy participants a lot i think that he's a guy who does have some talent and so you know a lot of guys that blair and i really liked went between our 501 and our 612 and we were interested to see which guys would go there but for etn and singletary to get back within just a couple of picks is almost heartbreaking because you're like man if you could have just gotten a few more slots you mentioned travis etn and when you haven't seen a guy and when someone's coming off of injury, then there are going to be so many participants who are not willing to feel uncomfortable. That thing that you talked about being so important. And <laughs> I mean, I, I guess if there is any strength that I have as a fantasy participant, it's that I'm very willing to draft teams that when you put them on Twitter, people say that team is awful. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that part of it, but ETN there. I mean, he's the kind of guy who's going to have the types of running back touches that we covet. And so for him to go in that range is, is surprising. Now, you know, again, talking before the show, you know, you were mentioning the Jaguars as a team that because they are young, they have this young quarterback, they have a new head coach, the head coach, maybe not the most exciting pick, but not a disastrous pick like some of the other franchises made. They have a lot of capital. We could be seeing a very different Jacksonville Jaguars next year. And I think that the quality of Jacksonville is also weighting down his ADP when in fact that really shouldn't be an issue. I'm in the process of writing up the article about this range of the draft right now. Uh, it'll probably come out around when the pod releases. And one of the things that I'm noting here is that he really feels to me like our favorite guy from last season, who was DeAndre Swift. Now with Swift, we actually had the element where he had we had seen him play as a rookie, and he'd been very dynamic when he was out there, and yet was inexpensive because of the Detroit Lions and because of this free agent acquisition of Jamal Williams, who was going to take some of the touches. But one of the things that we suggested, and you, know, you can go back and forth on if you were right because you were right or you were right because you were lucky. But one of the things that did happen with Jamal Williams, even when DeAndre Swift wasn't out there, is that he did tend to get mostly low-value touches. And if you have a secondary back who's going to take those low-value touches away, 
I mean, you could almost say it's a tiny benefit because then these running backs that we want to stay healthy are not being plunged into the line. Yeah, the McCaffrey is right up the middle. Yeah, so you look at ETN and you're like, okay, the Jaguars, they're going to be enough better probably to make them not a disaster, but not enough better, I think, to where they're not going to need to throw a lot of passes to the running back in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. And the touch profile for ETN, I expect to be fantastic you know, unless he doesn't come back anywhere close to 100%. And so from that perspective, I, I think, you know, w- in part we passed on both Hall and ETN at the 501 because we kind of wanted to see where they would go. But, I mean, I have some regret on not selecting one of those guys instead of Devontae Smith. Yeah, I think ETN is an easy pick even there, and like you said. And he goes 609 instead of 501. But, yeah, I – I was actually planning to ask you about that comparison with DeAndre Swift. I love it. I actually made the same comparison on ship chasing, I think, a couple of weeks ago. So really glad that you're thinking similarly because you were the one that got basically all of us on DeAndre Swift last year and absolutely crushed that. But yeah, no, I, I just I wanted to circle back to this idea of these young backs here. You kind of hit on it again, that uncomfortability. That, I, I mean, I, I think... From the dead zone research I've done, and we've talked about this on the show, the ones that do hit are these young backs that are breaking out for the first time. And that I think we, you know, you don't always know why trends are what they are, but I think we actually have that figured out as well, the why. And the why very much is this idea of guaranteed volume, guaranteed touches and uncomfortability at running back. Drafters love to take running backs that they feel very comfortable projecting the workloads for. Everything I just said about drafting uncomfortably when we're talking about receivers, it applies way better to running backs where people get way too sure of workloads and none of these workloads are at all secure. And then because they get sure of that, they knock down players that they're not sure of. Another great example, you talked about the Elijah Mitchell thing, this possibility that he could have a monster year, right? Why can't he? But drafters are not going to take him particularly high in part because of the Debo Samuel element. Uh, and in part because they're just not sure, you know, is Raheem Mostert going to come back? Do the Niners use all these different backs? All of this stuff, they're not sure about his workload. And it feels a little uncomfortable when you don't know how much he's going to play. And I would argue that's not how you think about running backs at all. You should never be trying to predict the certainty of their workload. You should be thinking about what do I get when I'm right, basically. And in a case of an Elijah Mitchell, uh, a Travis Etienne, any of those guys, there are clear paths to them being very, very valuable players. And you want to just stack as many of those as you can, especially in best ball, where you don't have to hit all of them. I mean, you talked about not wanting to throw away picks. It's true. But at running back, you want to at least be stacking guys that can be really good. And you can get by with misses at running back and and still be good in best ball, especially if you have two key hits, because one of the good advantages of running back when you do hit on them is that they, they get plenty of work every week. They kind of have a solid touch uh, volume and, and dependable work in season when we know, you know, who they are, you know, Elijah Mitchell last year is an example of that whenever he was he- healthy, was getting plenty of work. And so it, you don't almost need a, a bunch of producers. Whereas obviously at, at wide receiver, it's a little bit more high variance, the scoring each week, sometimes the targets just don't go to a guy. And so you do want a lot of producers and you want to be able to maximize the, the ceiling that you're getting out of the spots in your starting lineup every week. A running back, you're just trying to f- kind of find a couple that are really good for the season, I think, is maybe one way of thinking about it. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of ways to make people a little bit less com- or more comfortable 
with taking these types of guys. But I, I think that is the clear reason that we see in the data that these types of backs succeed from this range is, is really just that they shouldn't be going in that range other than the fact that we're not sure of what we have here. We're not sure of what we have with Travis Etienne and people are uncomfortable with that. And yet we can surmise some things based on his profile, based on the fact that he was a very good receiving back, right? Based on the the, com- the, the comments and the conversations around them drafting him, obviously Urban Meyer's not there anymore, but they talked about using him as a pass catcher and and the fact that he was very productive and, and very good in all the models as a prospect with the draft capital, everything. Like Travis Etienne is not going to be bad or, or not going to be not used or benched or whatever. I mean, maybe maybe he could be bad, but not, not completely um, unused and, and not able to get any work. And so it's just this level of uncomfortability when people are making these decisions and not thinking through and being more deliberate about the guys that they want to target that they're not they're not clicking the name as early as they should, frankly, because it just doesn't feel as right as clicking, say, Ezekiel Elliott, who we know, you know, gets a lot of work. But will he, you know, stay healthy? Will he stay explosive? Will that pay off anything? Those are the questions for Ezekiel Elliott and a lot of these older backs. Anyway, I think that's a really interesting thought and 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 perspective to have in those ranges uh with all these you know younger backs i think that's a perfect way to look at this range and look at the tactics that both you want to employ and why some people are not employing them that way just to kind of finish out the show i'll mention where the quarterbacks went because we haven't covered that yet and justin herbert there at the 603 you had mentioned that we took murray at the 701 joe burrow dak prescott aaron Rodgers in the middle of round seven and then matthew stafford at the 806 and those are some interesting picks uh, just uh, one more little tease here uh if the listeners will be okay with that for the jj segment uh, he mentioned that if there was one little thing that stood out to him about what happened last year and how it might influence 2022 drafting as he thought that perhaps because of 2021 there would be a little bit more confidence in the pocket passers than was justified based on uh, kind of how we would project people for it. now that doesn't mean that i think that these were necessarily bad picks herbert burrow rogers stafford where they went and you might even get some rushing from some of them uh very solid picks there we know that you need to take your quarterbacks in the quarterback window in best ball so that element I think is interesting. And Ben, we've we've gone for over an hour here. We need to wrap it up, but that'll do it for today's Stealing Bananas. It was fun as always. Get Ben's thoughts on some of these teams and some of these players. As always, I'm Sean Siegel. With me is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Make sure you subscribe to Stealing Signals. Ben has those cool articles coming out for you. If you want to subscribe to Rotoviz, you can actually use the coupon code RBRADO2021 to get a 10% discount at checkout uh, we mentioned the road of his rookie guide are really excited about that that's available now and also gives you a coupon code inside if you can leave us a reading and review for the pod it'll help us out a bunch and you guys have been fantastic with that we appreciate it so much subscribe to the feed we'll have an interesting tempo over the next couple of weeks and couple of months but we'll bring a lot of shows to you you'll get those as soon as they come out by subscribing have a have a good weekend and Enjoy the Super Bowl. It should be a fantastic game. We'll see you guys soon.